feminist critics of sex difference research really claim there are no biological sex differences, the short, sweet answer is no. Instead, feminist researchers call on all scientists to take more seriously the question of how radically interactive biology and environment may be, especially when it comes to human behaviour. Today's guest on the HBS podcast is Professor Cordelia Fine, who will be talking about the concept of norms of reaction in reference to sex differences in our brains and our behaviour. Cordelia is Professor of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Melbourne, and I first met Cordelia when I took her wonderful class, which at the time had the fantastic title, Sex in Science. I love telling people how much I enjoyed Sex in Science. I'm very excited to have her as a special guest on our podcast today. Hi, Cordelia. Thanks for joining me today. It is a delight to have you on the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Before we discuss the main topic, I wanted to ask you first how you came to be involved in history and philosophy of science, especially as I know yours was not a typical pathway. No, it certainly wasn't a very direct route. So I began my studies in experimental psychology. I took a brief detour uh, into a master's in criminology, and then I came back to psychology for my PhD. Then after my PhD, I came to Australia and I uh, was involved in a number of research projects with philosophers. Then I uh, sort of moved on to work on a project uh, on neuroethics. At that time, there was this rise in popularity of functional neuroimaging technologies and structural neuroimaging technologies. And of course, <laughs> they've only sort of gained in uh, influence and prevalence within neuroscience. And I was involved in a project on neuroethics, which was looking at how are these new technologies changing our conception of ourselves? And at the time, my children were quite young. I had two preschoolers. So I was also reading a lot of uh, parenting books. And uh, I noticed that a few of them were starting to sort of draw on findings on, of sex differences in the brain, like using these new technologies and, you know, saying, finally, we can look into the men and women's brains and boys and girls' brains and see the actual differences. And suddenly we can understand all the differences between us. And, you know, I was really interested in this, you know, particularly when they started to mention parts of the brain that I'd studied quite intensively as my PhD. And I thought, oh, I know it was talk no one was talking about sex differences then. So then I went, you know, that was a nice thing about working at a university. I could look up the research studies that were being cited as evidence. And I began to be more and more shocked at the sort of disconnection between what the popular books were writing and what was actually in the scientific literature. And so that was the point at which... Uh, I sort of made the decision to write my second book, Delusions of Gender. The intention of the book was to write about how the science was being kind of misrepresented by the popularizers, but in the end it actually became a much more complex and I suppose uh, controversial book in the sense that it was criticising the science itself. And that's what really sort of brought me into the area of, you know, what we can call feminist critique of science. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I actually subsequently to writing Delusions of Gender moved to the Melbourne Business School as part of my strange <laughs> strange career path. And there, you know, suddenly I was surrounded by different kinds of people, it's quite different to philosophers in many ways, all wonderful people though, of course. And then I began to be or, or more exposed, I suppose, to the ideas in economics, which was interested, of course, in risk-taking competition. Those are very key concepts in economics. But the economists were becoming interested in testosterone and risk-taking competition and making claims about sex differences uh, due to testosterone in those kinds of behaviours. And then at the same time, 
you know, you're sort of interacting a lot more with, you know, business communities and hearing some of the popular ideas about why don't women advance in their careers? Is it because they don't have the same drive to succeed or compete and so on? So that was where I kind of came to decide to write Testosterone Rex, which is looking at these arguments about evolution, testosterone, risk-taking, competition, and so on. Mm. Now, it was sort of funny at the time because I was sort of people would come to the printer and they'd pull out some you know, article that just been published that was like, the effects of castration are on rats. <laughs> and they'd be like, I think this might be yours. <laughs> so when I moved to the um, History and Philosophy of Science program in at the Faculty of Arts here in 2017, it kind of felt like, yes, this might be a more natural home for me, <laughs> though I, I really enjoyed my time at the business school. It was a really fantastic experience. Oh, fabulous. And then what would you therefore say your key interest areas in science study? I'm interested in the science of sex differences, particularly in brain and behaviour. And actually, I've, I've always been especially interested in the kinds of characteristics and traits that are drawn on to explain why we have inequalities of power and status. So I've tended, you know, there's lots of really interesting work on you know, sexuality, physical aggression, etc. But sort of, you know, in post-industrial societies, why do we still have so much in the way of inequality? Why do we still have so much segregation in the workplace? So that's often been my interest. And, you know, interested in the effects of sort of gendered assumptions and stereotypes on theories, methods, hypotheses, interpretations, conclusions, and so on. I think when you work in this area, you kind of inevitably and quite quickly sort of brush up against these debates about politicisation of science as mm. well. So, you know, people who do sort of feminist critiques of science in this area are often accused of blurring politics and science or politicising science. And, you know, I think this is a really interesting and important topic. I think these accusations are often, you know, completely misplaced and incorrect, but there, there is a, you know, there is a serious issue here. In my research and engagement and in teaching, I've been, you know, thinking about how we can draw on conceptual tools from philosophy of science, thinking about appropriate and inappropriate roles for values in science to think about where these boundaries are. When are our political values inappropriately intruding in science? And I actually talk about that in the subject that you took, which is now called Sex and Gender in the Sciences, mm-hmm. <laughs> a bit less exciting title. <laughs> Um, so, you know, one of the things that we do is we look at some controversial cases and we, we we do it through the angle often of articles that evoked controversy and there have been movements, either successful or otherwise, to have the articles corrected or retracted. And the students use what we've learnt in the subject to sort of think through and assess what they think that the editor should have done, whether they made the right decision or, or should have done something else. So part of that is like applying the what can be quite abstract mm. ideas from philosophy of science to the sort of rare, you know very real situation of having to make decision as someone in a decision-making role in a scientific journal will actually leave the last week of the subject clear because so often a case will actually come up during the course of the semester and then we can kind of analyse it almost in, in real time. How do they make sure that they're listening to other people's points of view, considering things uh, from from all sides, not not being dogmatic and, and you know, disagreeing well. So mm. that's one of the, the sort of sets of skills that I try and integrate into the teaching as well, mm. which I think, you know, particularly we're always going to come across, uh, you know, ideas that we disagree with, sometimes very passionately, 
you know, how do, how do we how do we deal with those disagreements in a constructive way and in a way that can lead to good decisions? Oh, fabulous. And yes, I certainly found that having taken that class, um, that is it. There's a real skill to it. Those kind of diverse thinking is um, absolutely essential. Now, we do need to turn to the central question of today, which is, could you tell us about a concept in science studies that is perhaps not widely known, but you believe would be of interest to a broader audience? Yeah, so the the concept that I wanted to talk about, I think is helpful for, you know, thinking through another accusation, which is sometimes thrown at feminist critics, which is the idea that they're sort of blank slaters. So they just think that, you know, we all come into the world with empty heads, and then we just have gender stereotypes sort of poured into us by uh, outside cultural forces. Again, this is sort of false caricature. But I think part of the problem here is that there are sort of more less complicated and nuanced ways of thinking about the role of biology in brain and behaviour. And I think the norm of reaction when we apply it to thinking about gender or sex differences uh, is quite a helpful concept. So in a nutshell, the norm of reaction is a very uncontroversial concept in biology. And it refers to the fact that organisms with the same genotype uh, will develop different phenotypes, that is, sort of traits and attributes, whether it's, you know, like uh, height or cognition or number of feathers or whatever it might be. So it will develop these different phenotypes depending on the environment in which it develops. So you can think of the norm of reaction as kind of like a map that shows the relationship between the genotype and phenotype across different environments. One helpful way of uh, making it a bit more concrete is to use the example from the zoologist who actually coined the term. He was interested in water fleas, and he observed that they can develop this kind of protective armour from predators, but they only develop that phenotype if they actually develop in an environment in which predators are present. It's, you know, gene-environment interaction, nature-nurture interact, right? So, you know, whether you're talking about water fleas, rats, humans, doesn't matter. No one thinks that the organism's phenotype is uh, completely determined by their, by their genes. Mm-hmm. The concept of the norm of reaction and how these maps might look a bit differently depending on what trait or environment you're talking about can open up some more nuanced ways of thinking about these gene-environment interactions. Right. And then so more specifically in relation to gender, how would that work? There's some nice terminology in, in sort of work from the philosopher of biology, Gillian Barker, in a book called Beyond Biofatalism. So she draw, draws on this concept of the norm of reaction to talk about three different kinds of genotype environment interaction that can kind of pull us away just from this kind of like, it's just interaction, there's interaction, right? Well, what kind of interaction? Yes, well, yes. she says, well, there are three. So one is what she calls conservative interaction. So she says, well, here they interact, but it is a way that in, in a way in which the internal causes tend to keep the phenotype very close to a sort of specific developmental outcome, which is kind of evolutionary intended, if you want to think, mm-hmm, think of that mm-hmm. in that way. So you, you need sort of very strong or atypical external influences in order to modify that phenotype. Only at the extremes will you not get the phenotype that's kind of intended. So we might think about that from a a sex differences Mm. point of view. I mean, this is kind of captured in expressions like boys will be boys. It's sort of like, you know, you can try (laughs) to make them more like girls. Their true natures were kind of will out, right? And in fact, you know, there's one researcher in the area sort of talked about sex differences in the brain as being a bit like being left-handed. You can kind of force somebody Mm -hmm. to use their right hand, but it's difficult for them. You know, you should just let them use their left hand right. So then the second time of interaction 
it's probably more how we tend to think about behavioral characteristics in boys and girls and men and women. So this is the idea of additive interaction. So here you kind of allow a bit more influence of environmental factors on how the phenotype develops, but they influence male genotypes and female genotypes to the same degree. And so you say how much nutrition there is in the environment is going to influence how tall boys and girls grow on average as a population, but the boys are always going to be taller than the girls and to the same degree. So you kind of have these parallel lines between Mm -hmm. the sort of male and female phenotypes. Often people are thinking in terms of that kind of additive interaction when they're thinking about sex differences. Mm -hmm. But then Barker talks about something which she calls um, radical interaction, which Uh is a nice name. And this this is where these external environmental causes have radically different effects or effects of quite different magnitudes depending on the individual genotype. So that would mean that depending on the environment, the size of the sex difference could be quite different, or it might disappear, or potentially it could even reverse. Right. right. So, you know, one interesting example of this, which when I saw it, I was actually quite surprised, uh, was a, a, a cross-cultural survey drawing on lower middle income countries looking at uh, sex differences in adolescence of physical aggression. And as you might expect, the kind of overall frequency within these countries varies quite a lot. So there are some countries where rates of physical aggression in this group are very high and Mm -hmm. other countries where it's much lower. But what was also interesting was that the kind of size of the difference was not uniform. So it it varied from being extremely large Mm. sex differences in physical aggression to being almost no sex difference at all. So that, you know, that's a sort of interesting example of a kind of radical interaction at the behavioral level. You know, another example is uh, the, the work kind of going a bit more fine grain, looking at the work of um, Daphne Well, so it's a neuroscientist who sort of put forward this idea of gender mosaicism. So she was looking at the literature on genetic and hormonal influences or sex differences in the brain and noting that the sex differences that you observe, and this is an animal research can be different or opposite depending on the environmental conditions. And so she she argues that because animals sort of naturally live in all kinds of quite varied environments, the result of this is a sort of mosaicism of more male typical, more female typical characteristics in the brain. Uh, But this gives rise to what she calls these mosaic brains in a kind of multidimensional space that can't be reduced either to sort of distinct male or female brains, which is what you'd expect from conservative interaction, or a kind of male or male-female continuum, which is what you'd expect from additive interaction. So it really does support this idea of this radical interaction, the, yeah. the mosaic support. Yeah. Excellent. I was interested in how this idea relates to that idea that supposedly differing levels of testosterone before you're born hardwire us into different ways of thinking. Yeah, I think it certainly complicates it. So traditional account of sex differences in the brain kind of used the effects of hormones on the genitalia as a kind of model for thinking about sex differences in in the brain. Now, it has become sort of more complex and nuanced, and I don't think many researchers now would think it very useful to talk in terms of hard wiring, but there's still this kind of legacy of thinking about these effects of early testosterone on the brain. Mm. As Rebecca Jordan-Young has pointed out, so she did this sort of incredible synthesis of this literature in her book Brainstorm. Back in the 60s or 70s, there was already evidence that these, what were sort of being thought of as permanent effects on the brain could actually be undone through quite sort of, you know, simple experiences or manipulations. So they weren't actually um, permanent at all. 
But one thing she talks about is the scientific models sort of moved on to sort of softer version, which she describes as a kind of developmental cascade. So this is the idea is that there's a kind of tilt in a particular direction, drawn to particular kinds of experiences, nature recruiting nurture, right? Ah, yes. Yeah. Certainly something like this could be going on. But, you know, Jordan Young points out that, you know, sometimes that might actually be the developmental story. But, you know, the other side of it is that there might be an early push from, you know, early hormones that's either enhanced or it's actually eliminated. And then development proceeds as if that early push had never actually happened. It's a bit more of an open-ended developmental pathway. Oh, yeah. No, that's fantastic. The title of Rebecca Jordan Young's chapter I really enjoyed in which she discusses this concept was called Trading Essence for Potential. Could you tell us a little bit more about what she means by that? You know, she's sort of challenging this this standard story that I've described, like either this kind of permanent effects or uh, these kind of developmental cascades and pointing out that development is is a lot more open-ended than this. So at each stage of development, the, the organism, the individual is at a particular state and then there's this sort of interaction and then on to the next state and so mm. on. One way to sort of think about it, to draw on the work of, excuse me, another neuroscientist who, who comes from a feminist perspective, Lise Elliott, she was talking about this in, in relation to physical aggression. So there are clear sex differences in physical aggression and particularly at the most sort of most serious forms of physical aggression notwithstanding that I've mentioned that the size of that difference can be surprisingly variable yes and she talks about this idea that it it does seem very plausible that there's some kind of early uh, biological tilt you know whether it's prenatal testosterone or or something else it's you know it's not completely clear but let's say for the sake of argument it is prenatal testosterone but then if you think about this in terms of this initial state, it's clear that there's, when you think in terms of developmental trajectories, when you look at the data, what you see is most children starting at a sort of relatively high rate of physical aggression when they're very young, Mm. and then this reducing, right? And then there's a small number of boys and even smaller number of girls who kind of maintain those higher levels. So, you know, you can think of that in terms of this you know, this early biological tilt that that can send you, can make you more likely to develop along a particular kind of developmental trajectory, you know, being someone who does not control impulses to behave in physically aggressive ways. But for the majority in the sorts of environments that are being, that that's not happening. And so in that sense, most boys end up, quote unquote, like girls in being low in, in physical aggression. So that would be that would be an example of a different way of thinking about it. So rather than there's a kind of seed of physical aggression in every man mm-hmm. that has to be suppressed throughout their their lifetimes, there are a few for whom that will be their developmental trajectory, but for others that there's not something that has to be kind of continually suppressed by by culture. Yeah. Oh, fabulous. Oh, thank you so much. And so why do you feel the concept of norms of reaction is important more broadly? Well, I I mean, one reason I think it's important is because it, it kind of helps us get away from this idea. You know, people who are criticising the sort of standard or popular story are seen as saying either that the sex differences don't really exist or that hormones don't really have an effect. You know, hopefully it's clear now that that's not really what the story is. It's yes. like, of course, hormones are having an effect. But the question is, where does that effect fit into a sort of whole developmental pictures? And yes, sex differences exist. But 
what would they be in different circumstances with a different developmental history in a different environment? Sort of those are the kinds of different scientific questions, actually, that we can be asking. What sends people on the kind of developmental journey towards traits, a phenotype that we actually want to encourage and which ones send them uh, on a journey towards phenotypic traits that we don't want to encourage, for instance. I think that's one reason why it's important and that it really sort of opens our minds to thinking about what we see now in our current particular context is in a particular moment of time. And that's one of the points that Jordan Young makes really nicely in her book she's talking about, for example, she talks about, you know, she goes from like the nitty gritty of rat sex <laughs> right through to, um, you know, educational achievement in the US. You know, seen, we've seen reversals over the past, I don't know, 40 or 50 years where, you know, we used to have men getting the majority of degrees and now, you know, in the US and Australia, we actually have women uh, outnumbering men and the number of university or college degrees. And the, the point being that, you know, when you change the environment, you can see quite striking changes in sort of patterns of behavior and, and achievement and so on. And so to just be a, a little bit more, I guess, open minded in terms of what one might see in the future and what aspects of the environment make a make a difference and, and to be sort of scientifically open minded as well. I mean, I think yes. one thing that Jordan Young says really nice is really nice in her book, the way she describes the point of her book is that it's not to uh, it's not to answer questions, but to question answers, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is a, a really nice way of, of putting it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I would like to thank you, Cordelia, for joining us on our first season of the podcast. It has been fantastic to talk with you today. Oh, thanks for having me. And I look forward to hearing the other episodes. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the first season of the HBS podcast, where we discuss all things history, philosophy and social studies of science. To learn more, check out our website at hbsunimel.org. There you can also find links to our blog, Twitter, Facebook and Insta, as well as show notes for today's topic. I'm Samara Greenwood and my co-producer is Indigo Keel. We look forward to having you back again next time.